Greetings listeners, Craig here with a brief message before you listen to the podcast that you've clicked on. This is being released during the 2023 WGA and SAG-AFTRA strikes. Without the labour of the writers and actors currently on strike, the thing you're about to listen to us talk about wouldn't exist. We stand with those on strike and support their desire to be recognised for the wonderful work they do. Now please enjoy our discussion. Hi, my name is Anna. Um, You may know me from Power Rangers, Spartacus, Kevin in the Woods. Anger management, depends what you're into. And you are listening to Neil Before Paw. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Hello and welcome to Neil Before Pod, the podcast that doesn't listen to the canon. Or do we? I'm your host Craig and we are here to discuss the latest Sony animated Spider-Man film, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Joining me for this is my counterpart from Earth, whatever number he wants, we haven't classified it yet, it's Chris. Hello, what Earth number are you? Uh, 107. 107, okay. I want to ask why. I'm going for radio frequencies. (laughs) That works. I'll go for 107. The only canon I listen to is the one o'clock gun. Oh. Nah. Those outside of Edinburgh might not know what that means. Uh, In Edinburgh at 1pm, someone fires off a gun into the air and no one runs away screaming, crucially. If you want to shoot someone in Edinburgh, one o'clock's your time. (laughs) Just time your shot for bang on one o'clock. I feel like you could do a Sherlock story about that, couldn't you? Well, no one heard the shot because it was at (laughs) 1pm. It was at one o'clock and the one o'clock gun was going off. It must have happened in a detective novel already. (laughs) It must have done. There's no way we've come up with that and it's not been done in an Ian Rankin or something. And if it hasn't been done, then I'll cut all this out so that no one steals it from us. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, we're not here to talk about fantasy Sherlock stories. We're here to discuss the latest Spider-Man thing across the Spider-Verse. So let's just kick off with our spoiler-free thoughts on this film. What did you think? I loved this film. I thought it looked absolutely stunning from start to finish. I don't think there's a frame in this film that you couldn't actually just put up on your wall, get printed and put up on your wall. I think it looked pretty stunning. The story and everything is great. Good new characters in there. The ones that do return, you're grateful for the return. I really, really enjoyed this. So the next time anybody visits your place, it'll just be wallpapered with frames from this film. And it will look gorgeous. You could just get every frame but print it off to be really small and just tile your wall with it, essentially. <laughs> I love that idea. Here's the entire film on my wall. Some kind of flipbook wallpaper. I don't know. Does such a thing exist? Can it exist? Who knows? does now. I'm of a similar mind. I loved it. I thought it was bursting with creativity. Like you say, visually, every frame of it is carefully considered and sets a new standard for animation. Somehow it makes the first film look pedestrian by comparison. I don't know how they managed that, because I remember when we came out of the first film thinking, wow, this is the new standard for animation. Now this is the new standard for animation. So well done there. I think I said afterwards, my eyes are exhausted after this. (laughs) there was just so much to take in all the time it's very overwhelming but in the best way you watch a pixar film or a disney film and it looks great but it's got a very flat animation style so you go into element city with elemental and it looks amazing it's this great world that they've created but at the same time the animation is very distinct it's of a piece you see it throughout the film 
Inside Out plays a bit with different animation styles, but only for select sequences, stuff like that. But this doesn't. This throws in different animation styles, sometimes in the same scene, and expects you to drink in its majesty of visual storytelling. And it completely works. I absolutely loved it. So it's great that we're here to talk about it, because it deserves to be talked about. Yeah, it's so creative. And what you said about so much being on screen, the amount of little pop-ups and little bits that I definitely will have missed is incredible. Annoyingly, I've only been able to see it once before talking about it today, so I've definitely missed stuff in here. It's enough to fill a million clickbait articles from certain websites that do those kinds of articles. 1,001 things that you missed in Across the Spider-Verse. Or 1,010 things you missed. And across this <laughs> yeah, a thousand ten things you missed articles. That's what it will be because you've got to keep that content going. Yeah. I always hate those articles. If I do fall for it and read them and think, I didn't miss that. I caught that. So the article heading is wrong. But you also made me click on it. Yeah, it's the ones where they go, uh, things that you missed. Miles appeared in the first film. And you're like, yeah, yeah, we know. If you missed that, there's something far wrong with you. <laughs> cool. So shall we descend into the spoiler verse? Let's into the spoiler verse or across the spoiler verse because we've already been into the spoiler verse. Okay, let us start with Miles, who's the lead character. Although the film doesn't start with him, which we'll talk about, but we do have Miles returning. He's a bit older now, he's been Spider Man for a bit over a year, I think he says, and he's falling into that usual crap that spiders fall into. As in the spider powered here, not just spiders, although they do fall into traps sometimes, but he's struggling to juggle his double life he's thinking about his future and who he wants to be and he faces various bits of resistance from that so what do you think of the setup of miles in his own world trying to be spider-man trying to be a student trying to be a son all at once and kind of failing at all of them in different measures i like you say it's that traditional spider-man story isn't it you can't have it all you can either be a really good spider-man you can be a really good family guy or a really good boyfriend, or a really good student, but you can't be all of these all at once. It doesn't work. And it was good to see that that tradition is still alive, even with Miles. I thought it was really interesting kicking off and doing the one-year fast-forward, which it turns out we kind of saw in the end credits of the last one. I thought that was quite fun. The one-year fast-forward, seeing him struggling about a bit. The traditional being late for something. A show, a party. I think he's late for, what, two parties in this? He's late for a meeting and he's late for a party. I was going to say it's a traditional Peter Parker thing, but let's go with it's the traditional Spider-Man thing in this case. Peter Parker usually doesn't make it to the party. That's usually his problem. <laughs> He misses it. Yeah, I loved he gets the cake and then he swings the cake through the city. So, of course, by the time it arrives, the cake is just mush. I don't know about you, actually, but I thought the cake thing, it was going to obey that weird animation principle of, despite the fact that you've been jostling this about, it turns out it's still fine somehow. It turns out it's perfect. Yeah. I'm trying to remember, was it Toby Maguire that ends up with broken eggs? Pizza. Pizza, yeah, smashed up pizza. All sorts of stuff like that where it's like, oh, that isn't the way that that's supposed to be transported. (laughs) He gets the pizza there. There's a guy that tries to eat it, but he retrieves the slice before it gets eaten. But he doesn't get paid for it because he's too late. I did like that opening for Miles. It sort of establishes what he's been up to while everything else has been going on. He's sort of settled into it in a way. He's quite confident. Is Spider-Man, as much as he's struggling for the balance of certain things, the way that he's approaching his rescues and things, it's like, I know what I'm doing. I'm confident. I've got this. 
he doesn't seem that he's being challenged in that way. He's challenged with his time management, but not challenged in being Spider-Man, if you know what I mean. He's competent. There we go. Competent, but time management skills. Yeah, but he also has those challenges as well, because you see him through the montage of, here's what I've been up to since you last saw me. I forget the exact details, but there's one thing that I made a mistake. Or there's two things where he says, I made a mistake. Yes. Was it he endorses something and then he's got to apologise? I'm trying to remember. (laughs) <laughs> There's an apology, and then he does the apology wrong. It turns out I shouldn't have backed that horse. Whoops. It's an interesting thing. Spider-Man is a public figure, I guess. It's something that the Miles Morales video game plays with a bit more directly, because this film isn't necessarily about him being Spider-Man of the place that he lives, but the Miles Morales game very much is. He lives in Harlem in the game, and it's very much about, this is a hero we can call our own. He's a Harlem hero, and mm. he's ours, kind of thing. Which... They drive at a little bit here. He says he's the Spider-Man of Brooklyn. And there's stuff in the film about him wanting to get out of Brooklyn. And that's something his parents don't want him to do. So it's kind of in there. But also, there's a multiverse to go and play with. So we can't spend a ton of time on that, really. But it's in there. Mm. So I like that. Yeah, I liked him juggling his different responsibilities and failing to do so. And he has a bit of overconfidence about him as well. But when he fights the spot, he doesn't see it as a big deal. So he takes it less than seriously which ends up being a not fatal mistake, at least not yet, and not for him. It'll be for his dad, I guess. Mm-hmm. But it's the idea of, I face you idiots a couple of times a week. I'm not going to worry about this too much. And it's a very comedic fight. And the emotional stakes of it are, he's going to be late for this meeting, which again is a great Spider-Man thing. I love that, where the overhanging stakes of something are, he has to be at this thing because it's important to him in his civilian life. I'm thinking back to an episode of Spectacular Spider-Man that starts with a really high-octane sequence where he's swinging through the city really fast, talking about how desperate he is. And it turns out he's just trying to get to school before the bell rings, and he fails. (laughs) That's what I love about Spider-Man, these very domestic problems that you can relate to. I mean, I'm not a superhero, honest, but I can relate to running late. It's always a problem. That's exactly what a superhero would say. It is, but also what someone who isn't a superhero would say. Read into that how you will. (laughs) And his relationship to his parents... I love that. It does this interesting thing that you don't maybe see an awful lot of, the idea of parenting, but from the perspective of the parents and Mm. the very real perspective of the parents. Because you can see from a lot of things like this, teenage superhero things, that the parents are the obstacle. They don't understand the hero. They don't understand their teenage son. And that's in here. But also it's the idea of we're as clueless as he is, but from the other side, we have no idea how to raise a 15-year-old child. We have no idea how to handle this kid growing up and we don't know how to talk to him. We don't know how to get him to listen to us. And they struggle with that line of communication. I really like that. That felt very unique, especially to put in a kid's film. The Mm. idea of, oh no, your parents, they're just clueless completely. They just have no idea what's going on, but they pretend they do. And that's something you can relate to them on. The fact that they don't know what they're doing, because neither do you. I love that. Yeah, turns out your parents are also improvising. Yeah. I really did like that beat. In particular, I think the speech before he disappears off to follow Gwen, I'm trying to remember what the line is, but it's something along the lines of take care of the little boy inside of you, take care of my little boy when you're going off, take that with you when you go away. I thought that was an incredible little bit of writing in there. It's really, really strong. I also liked Miles speaking to his dad as Spider-Man, but getting his dad's 
honest approximation of himself. You'd ask that question, you go, oh, do I want to actually hear what he says? <laughs> do I want to hear what comes back? He's getting to see that other side, the fact that his dad doesn't know all the answers because his dad's standing there telling Spider-Man, in very commas, how he's struggling, how he doesn't know what to do. And I thought that was really powerful in there. Yeah, and Miles does that thing that all teenagers do. It's the, I can't be honest with my parents because I've got to be cool. Mm. When he's getting the message and icing on the cake and it's, I'm really proud of you, lol, and... <laughs> I'm really proud of you, LOL. And he's kind of dances around how he actually feels. It's almost like, I can't tell him that because then he will laugh at me. It's not cool. It's a bit like in the first one when he forces him to say, I love you before he goes into the school. Yeah, with the loud hailer, yeah. yeah. It's that teenage rebellion thing at that point where it's not cool to like my parents or be close to my parents. I'm at that stage where I don't need them anymore, but he actually needs them more than ever. And they need him more than ever as well. One of the best indications of the fact that his father doesn't know how to relate to him is he defaults to grounding him. And whenever something happens that he doesn't like, he just gives it another month. He adds another month <laughs> onto the total of months grounded. It was a nice touch. And the mother as well had a very different connection to him. She was far more empathetic, I suppose. Not that his dad wasn't, but she was better able to express it, I think. And she was honest with him about, we've worked hard to raise you in a loving household and that means you might not be ready for the real world outside of it and just be wary of it don't let anybody tell you you don't belong there all that stuff which obviously Mm. ends up being a major theme because that's how these things work these pep talks are thematically linked in ways that you may not be in real life yeah it turns out that piece of advice goes forward way forward (laughs) (laughs) it was great it was a great dynamic and it felt fresh it felt different to other parent-child dynamics you see in other things which is nice the complexity of this film is brilliant it makes me wonder who's it for actually because young kids could probably just enjoy it on an aesthetic level i feel like it's a bit like the spectacular spider-man cartoon it's just made for fans of this stuff doesn't matter what age you are at some point you'll get older and understand more of it as you go but it's one that you can get into when you're really young and just kind of grow up with and and get more out of it the older you get. Absolutely. I think you're right with that. It's got so many different levels to it that a way younger viewer, it's loud, has colours and sound effects and funny noises and silly crash bang moments in it where young kids will be like, yay, love it. A dinosaur crashing through a wall, yay, fun. And then other bits of it, you have those emotional beats that will hit so much harder where people are able to apply their own relationships and their own experiences with their parents or with their friends or a time when X or Y happened and be able to apply that to the same story and understand it from a totally different level, I guess. I love how old-fashioned his parents were in a lot of ways. What friends have you got? There's Yankee. He calls me by my first name. I love that. <laughs> Teenagers shouldn't get to call parents by their first name. It's an old-fashioned thing. It's the idea of you call your boss sir when you go to work and stuff. One of those outdated things. Yeah, I guess so. Traditional values, isn't it? It's not even the 50s, 60s style thing to it, is it? It's later than that. I did like the element of that. There's a bit of tradition in there, a bit of respect. You would get that from an officer of the law as well, because it's process and formality. And Yeah, and I think Miles' dad's job as a police officer is very interesting as well, because on Miles's bag, he has a Black Lives Matter sticker or badge, which obviously is very topical. And the fact that his dad's a police officer almost exists in contrast to that, because obviously the mistrust of police that came about as a result of that movement certainly in america is still very strong to this day people still don't trust the law in fact we've got a huge thing in the uk at the moment where the london metropolitan police are getting called out for institutional racism 
that needs to stop, but no one knows how to stop it because it's rotten to the core. And I suspect similar exists in the US. It's almost that Jefferson brings a dignity to the profession, the, the fact that he's a black man who's also a police officer. He talks about the mistrust of the uniform as well at one point in the film. That in itself is an interesting element to have in there. I don't know what the film does with it, really, nothing as such, but just as a bit of texture, it's interesting. Yeah, it adds a bit of texture. It also adds, if you think of how difficult it will have been for him to get into the position where he's going to be a captain, working his way through the ranks and dealing with what the police see on a day-to-day basis, not wanting to go too deep into it with it being a I was going to say a kids film it's not an animated kids film really but it's not his story but it adds a dimension to it it's the respect for the badge the uniform what he sees and does on a daily basis openly whereas Miles is doing it in disguise incognito under an alias it's that tonal shift that you've got and you've had obviously before as a traditional part of the story that if superheroes weren't respected they should have their name out there story yeah, your Civil War type argument. Exactly. Which doesn't really come into play here as such. And I don't think anybody's pushing for Miles to take his mask off, actually. That also doesn't come up. No, no, no. It may do. If we ever get a non-Spider-Verse animated story about Miles, then that may come into it. As an aside, I was slightly disappointed by his updated costume in this film. I liked the spray-painted one in the previous one. Yeah, the sort of more radical, rough version of it rather than the newer version. Yeah. Although his costume was routinely made fun of throughout, wasn't it? What is this? You're bleeding from your armpits? Yeah. (laughs) Enjoyed that. There was a bit of that in there. I like that there was a bit of gentle ribbing. It's the usual thing of a lot of the times when outfits and stuff get updated, it's because we want to distinguish this as a new film. Also, new merch. We can sell new toys, yes. Why have we unnecessarily changed this costume? New toys, new models. How will people know that this is the model from this one specific film? Yeah, okay, fine. We'll update the logo slightly. We'll move the spider about. We'll change the pattern slightly. And there we go, done. It's another 20,000 Funko Pops we can stick in a landfill. (laughs) Exactly. Miles' main arc in the film is about... There's a couple, actually. but It's more about being accepted and finding his path. The usual coming-of-age superhero stuff, in fairness, but dialed up to massive levels because of the Spider-Verse. So the idea of him being perceived as a mistake because the spider that bit him wasn't meant to bite him. It was meant to bite someone else in a completely different universe, which feeds into, as I said, his mother's advice about don't let people push you around, don't let people tell you you don't belong. And then he faces someone that tells him that he doesn't belong. And the idea that he is somewhat different from the other spiders, which makes them think he doesn't, or some of them think he doesn't belong. And he has to prove himself. He has to prove himself worthy of that. And he does largely, obviously. He decides that he's Miles Morales. He was bitten by a radioactive spider and he is Spider-Man, that affirmation after he'd been told so often that he wasn't. What did you think of his development towards, I belong here, I deserve these powers, I should be in this place? Even though it was an accident, everybody's an accident. What did you think of him getting to that point? I don't know what to say about that, really. Um, I think it was good to see him gain that confidence, that trust in himself, knowing everything's meant to be an accident and everything's supposed to be fate rather than a predefined thing wasn't his fault that that spider ended up in his universe and bit him. It wasn't something that he ventured out to do, but he has embraced it, has become Spider-Man in his world. We had that through the whole first film 
him feeling that he wasn't owning up to his ability and the mantle that was sort of passed on to him. And this was, like you say, the affirmation of, I can outwit all these guys, all these other spider people. I can run rings around them by the looks of it. Yeah, I guess that was a strong development in the character through the film. That brings us naturally to Miguel O'Hara, Spider-Man of 2099 who is an antagonist. I won't call him a villain because I think it's more complicated than that. He is committed to a certain ideology and he will not allow any deviation from that, which makes him pretty scary in places. I loved Oscar Isaac's really intense vocal performance. From the first moment you see him, you think there's something not right about this guy. And then he just keeps getting more intense as it goes on until the point where he's pretty terrifying when he's chasing after Miles. There's just something very unsettling about all that there's something incredibly cold about i've gone through this pain therefore you must go through this pain too despite the fact i could prevent it or i could help i've been through this and therefore you must suffer this trial as well in order to become what you are going to become in order for you to get your development i will put you through this torment i know you're about to go through this and i'm going to let it happen and i'm going to let it happen thousands of times over and in fact i'm going to enforce others to make sure they make sure that you suffer in this way it's incredibly dark in a way i've been through a a torment a pain and all of you are going to go through that same run because it's what's needed to happen to turn you into the hero that's down the line. And it's one of those, how do I word that correctly? I'm trying to think of the turn of phrase. It's trying to put the benefit there and go, this is the better outcome. This is the way it's got to be in order to get the better outcome. That, I think, is what seems so dark about it. It's a really strange one. And I think we're going to spend a lot of time speculating on this because we don't have the whole story yet. The Mm. thing that we're going to keep coming back to is we don't know what the second half of this story is. So therefore, everything we say now, you may think is a problem with the film, probably isn't a problem with the film because it doesn't sell itself as the whole story. There's going to be more to it. So you see the Mumbatton universe starting to supposedly implode on itself because the canon event didn't happen in the way that it was supposed to happen, which apparently causes the universe to tear apart. One event causes it to die, and it seems like they're trying to restore it. But I feel like Miguel isn't giving us the whole story here. There's something else going on there. Perhaps he's manipulating things in order to suit his narrative. I don't know. But I find the whole canon event set up quite interesting as well because we have so many adaptations of various properties that we've seen over the years. How many Spider-Man films have we seen, for example, or versions of Spider-Man we've seen? In live action, we have three main ones, Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, and Tom Holland, and their beats are very similar, at least in terms of the setup. The Tom Holland one's slightly different, as in you don't see Uncle Ben get shot, although it's heavily implied, or in the case of an episode of What If, told that Uncle Ben was shot at some point in the past. And then he has his moment with his Aunt May being killed, which becomes Mm. kind of his Uncle Ben moment, after Tony Stark also kind of becomes his Uncle Ben moment. He has a lot of Uncle Ben moments, does Tom (laughs) Allen. There's a few formative events. Possibly an actual Uncle Ben moment as well. We don't know. We've not seen. We haven't seen it. It's been alluded to. Tobey Maguire, he has his Uncle Ben moment. Though This is specifically about, at some point, Spider-Man will fail to save a police captain, and that ends up being a foundational event of some sort. Hmm. Although you don't see that happen to Tobey Maguire. So I we assume that 
James Cromwell's Captain Stacy is going to be murdered at some point after the events of Spider-Man 3. By the time he turns up in No Way Home, he's failed to save James Cromwell, perhaps? Potentially. That's the interesting thing. Everyone goes through a version of this story. And I guess we kind of saw that from the last multiverse Spider-Man film. Oh, well, this was my motivational moment. This was the person that was important to me that died. You get them sort of rolling through that. I just think it's quite dark. The thing that you said about us not knowing why things are happening for real, I think you're right. I think there is going to be a revelation of how all this is stuck together in the next film, presumably. Whatever Miguel has done to create the timeline the way it is or to manipulate the timeline that's what's coming unstuck i think when you're seeing these events if the event doesn't happen and things start to come unstuck that's his sticky tape that's coming off not the fabric of the universe tearing apart he's obviously done something to manipulate things but i don't think we're going to see what or why that has happened yet. Well, the suggestion is that he's the ultimate gatekeeping fan, isn't he? Mm. With all the adaptations we've seen of things, how many times do you see people bitching online about, this isn't right because they didn't do this, they changed this, and that makes it not valid in my eyes, and things like that. And Oh, yeah, yeah. People are allowed to think that. There are changes in various things that I don't like, but I wouldn't necessarily condemn the entire project because they maybe changed around a few things that I didn't like. In some cases I do, and I've been more militant about it in the past. It's something that as I've gotten older, I care less about. I'm a bit more interested in if the thing in front of me is worth watching and I can still recognise it as the thing that I want to watch, then fine. Although I do also acknowledge that in order for it to be an adaptation of, say, Superman or Spider-Man or whatever, there are certain elements that I would really like to be there, otherwise it might as well not be that thing. I don't want Superman to be evil because Superman isn't evil. He shouldn't be. I understand that, yeah. There's certain core elements to a character or a property where you go, okay, well that's the minimum that I would expect from this for it to pass as that character, to pass as that universe. I think the fact that they even called it a canon event is a very story writer, screenwriter way of describing a thing. Oh, that's a canon event. It's a way a fan would sit there and go, oh, well, that's not part of the canon. That's not a true part of the canon. That's not part of the story. I've read all the material and all the books and all the characters and watched all the stuff, and that's not part of canon. The use of that language, I think, very much ties it into the fandom element, which is quite interesting. Oh, yeah, and the film's pointing a finger at the people that are mm. like that, the people that become very, very militant about it to the point that they rubbish things online and attack people online for liking things that they don't or vice versa. And that's what I think Miguel represents. Mm. He is that kind of fan. And the film is basically saying, that is not a good thing. Look at the rich variety we've given you here of spider stories. This is just people with spider powers. Imagine the variety you could get everywhere if you embrace the fact that these things can be unique and weird and different in their own ways, why are we always sticking to these same beats when you don't have to? Because you can get to the fundamentals in different ways. We just talked about how Miles has got the fundamentals of being Spider-Man, but with a very different setup. He's always late. He can't balance his double life. He's dealing with very domestic as well as large-scale issues. Those things, they're Spider-Man 101, and he hasn't had to go through the same level of stuff that you would expect a Peter Parker version to go through, although he did have the Uncle Ben moment with his uncle, and the first film did point out the similarities there. And the police captain one's an interesting one because the George Stacy death in the comics was 
seen as a pivotal moment and then Gwen's death followed a few issues later. So I wonder if the next step from Miguel is, well, after this, we have to kill your girlfriend as well? Who's related to this police captain? The Spider-Man of Mumbatan, is he destined to lose the police captain and then his girlfriend a few days later? Because that's the way it played out for this comic Mm. book version of Peter Parker that was seen as the first instance of that thing happening, or at least the PowerPoint presentation. Very slick and stylish PowerPoint presentation. PowerPoint (laughs) presentation, nonetheless. That was explained as if that was the start of it. So it suggests that the 60s comics are the Earth 1, so to speak, even though they take place on Earth 616. Yeah, I would need to look closer at it. I just look forward to its release on DVD (laughs) so I can sit there and pause frame by frame. Well, the artwork that's shown is off that original issue of spider-man oh yeah yeah. the event's name is asm whatever the issue was Mm. so it's how it's labeled so yeah it's the idea of people expect these things to happen so therefore they're going to happen but i think that miles is a bit of an aberration in some ways as well because he's a relatively new character and there are already multiple versions of him that have different backstories in fact even the original one has different backstories because he started off in the ultimate universe and then was ported over to the main universe. And with that was a slightly different backstory. I'm sure his mother dies. I forget which way round it is, but his mother dies at one point. I can't remember the ins and outs, but he doesn't have that same kind of and then this happens, and then this happens type origin story that others have. Well, that's the advantage to Miles, both in a film like this and in the comics as well, is because the characters knew there's a lot that they can do differently. It's not got the traditional... Peter Parker beats that go in there. You can do something different with his origins and spin off different stories from Miles. Not that Peter Parker's story has been tapped dry, but if you reboot your Peter Parker, there's those beats that are expected, which is kind of what this film gets at. These are the expected things, and it's a benefit to Miles both in the comics and in content like this, and animation and story and in games and other things, is that you can kind of go off and do something with Miles and people will be like, oh, okay, I guess that's fine. Yeah, because there's a couple of animated versions of Miles. They're different from each other and they're different from the comics. You have the video game version of Miles where his dad dies before he becomes Spider-Man and his own game is about him dealing with that and stepping up and helping his mother and things. Well, that's it's about a lot of things, but that's part of what it's all about. So you've already got a lot of variation with Miles Morales there. And I wonder if the next film will bring in more variants of Miles other than the one we see at the end to prove that the canon is a load of bollocks. Because look at all these Milesies and none of them are like me. We all have different stuff in our backstory. The bit that fascinates me about that is when you get told that as a spider person that's invited to this spider society that Miguel's created, at what point do you get told these are the things that happen to all spider people? Because it doesn't quite seem that your Mumbatan Spider-Man is aware that this canon event always happens. There's always a canon event where you're going to lose someone, but he's still part of the society and knows everything that's going on, knows about the multiverse and knows about the hopping and all that sort of stuff. And very specifically, he hasn't encountered any hardship because he does his origin. He's like, yeah, it's all great for me. Everything's easy. It's great, lovely. Everyone thinks I'm fantastic. Let me show you about my town. I'm having a great life. It's all super perfect. Okay, but he's been welcomed in despite not knowing that that's their destiny. I I don't know if it's a, oh, just look out for weird stuff and report in if there's weird stuff, but you don't get told that, yeah, oh, by the way, it's your job to enforce canon events. 
there's probably a hierarchy in the spider society. Yeah, I imagine so. But that was a bit that sort of I go, okay, hang on, how does that? At what point do you get the pitch of, oh yeah, by the way, this is why we do that job? That's why this is serious. And another interesting thing about it is these canon events have been accepted by everybody that's there, all the spiders that are there. Mm. So what Miguel has managed to do is he's managed to convince, for all we know, thousands of Peter Parkers and variations thereof that it's essential for the continuity of the universe or the multiverse for them to look the other way in certain circumstances, which is completely counter to Spider-Man's underlying motivation. The promise he makes to himself after Uncle Ben's death, and he blames himself for it, is, I will never look the other way again. Yeah, I will not stand by and let something bad happen because with great power comes great responsibility line. I have the responsibility to make sure that bad things don't happen to good people. And I will feel responsible if that happens. So the heavy weight of that and the fact, like you say, that somehow that's okay with, like you say, a thousand various spider people, but one miles is enough to go, hang on, what now? You say what? I'm not having that nonsense. One thing I thought about when I was considering this whole, how have you managed to do this to all these Peter Parkers? How have you managed to tell them that looking the other way is acceptable? And I wonder if, for a lot of them, they've been plucked out of their universes far enough in their journey where it's already happened to them. So you get pulled out of your universe and you get told, it really sucks that all these people died, but it was supposed to happen. That's the way your story is supposed to play out. You kind of get that from Peter B. Parker, where Miles says, this happened to you? And he was like, yeah, sucked. Not great, but it happened. So I wonder if a lot of them, it's just already happened to them. But again, how do you convince them to accept that they have to let it happen to others that may not be there yet? I think that's a question we'll get an answer to. Yeah, I imagine there will be something that comes along that explains that a bit. It's the fact that you've got a spider person in there that hasn't had that pivotal moment yet that was going to throw them over the edge. That's where I'm like, okay, if it's happened to all of them already, that explains why maybe you you don't have Miles in there yet because, oh, you need to have your pivotal moment first. You need to have your big canon event. And once you've had your big canon event, then you can be part of this. But until then, you're not going to understand why we're doing what we do. Seems like Miles was never going to get access to the spider society. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That seems separate, yeah. Because Miguel sees him as an accident, as an aberration that shouldn't exist. You're not getting to join my club because you're wrong. You're different. We don't like different here. Which is another very pointed thing to pick at. Even our pal Spectacular Spider-Man was into the whole canon event stuff. He got his one line where he said, sorry, it's supposed to happen. What happened, Spectacular Spider-Man? <laughs> what changed? In season three, did they kill off Captain Stacy? Because he's in the show. Is Gwen dead in your universe? What season are you on? Tell us. He's had such a dark time since then. The thing that was pointed out online where people have been in the cinema, I guess, screenshotting illegally, is that when they were cycling through all the canon events, he's cradling a mattress for some reason. (laughs) I did see a screenshot of that. Very bizarre. Why is he cradling a mattress? Will we ever find out? Hashtag safe spectacular Spider-Man. Bring it back. We need to know. (laughs) a great way to start the campaign we need to know what happens with the mattress just with that screenshot the blurry screenshot it's funny how people have hdr photography on their phones but somehow can't get a decent photo in a cinema or of the loch ness monster yeah those two things (laughs) it's very difficult to necessarily speculate on how that all comes into being because if it was just a film in its own right we could criticize it for not explaining it properly but it isn't it's part one so part two will presumably give us more 
detail, because part two will be about challenging the canon, won't it? That seems to be the direction they're heading in. Mm. The fact that Miles is supposed to lose his father because his father is a captain, according to Miguel. And it even comes into play for Gwen as well, because her dad's a captain. So she's kind of accepted that she's going to lose her dad at some point. But it's okay because she's running away and she doesn't have to think about it, I suppose. And then she gets absolved because he quits his job. So yeah, it seems like there's a lot of technicalities here. Mm. Very weird. But it's very interesting. And I think they set up that question very, very well. And I always love it when people throw shade at these horrible people on the internet that try and prevent people from enjoying stuff by just attacking them for enjoying stuff. So yeah great in that respect let's talk about Gwen she starts the film which surprised me and she talked about Miles so it was good to get the perspective on his origin through Gwen's telling of it that was a novel idea and I loved spending that extended bit of time in her universe with her watercolor backgrounds and things I loved all that and talking about her origin and how she came to be the way she is and I like that she's going through a lot of the same stuff Miles is but she's a bit later in her spider career. So it's weighing a bit heavily on her. She's Miles's future in some ways, but not a future to aspire to because she's not doing it very well. She's making a lot of bad decisions that are impacting her life. They're keeping her alone and keeping her feeling lonely and dragging her down. So I like that dynamic of she represents what Miles could be. If he doesn't embrace a relationship with his parents, if he doesn't open up to them, if he doesn't open up about certain things and, and make different choices... I really loved all that. What did you think of the handling of Gwen? Well, first of all, what you said about the opening. What was that? An opening 10 minutes, maybe 15 minute story that focused on Gwen before we got to the opening titles there was absolutely stunning. What a way to open the film. It looked beautiful on the way in. Again, back to the frame by frame, I will mount these on my wall. (laughs) It looked amazing and... The story was just done so well with the drumming and the hits and the way everything merged together in the watercolours was just amazing. Gwen's story, I thought, was really interesting because it's kind of leading into Miles's bit of Miles has a different kind of relationship with his parents. And you can see multiple times in this film how he wants to tell his dad, he wants to tell his mum, he's Spider-Man. He wants to be able to confide in them, get advice from them, get help from them. And Gwen, after her experience, puts him off that. No, don't do it. It'll be the worst mistake you ever make because of this experience that we see in the opening 15, where immediately after being forced into doing that reveal, runs away, doesn't see the consequence of her actions, doesn't let that breathe, let her father respond and flees from that where possibly if she had hung around they would have been able to talk about it or they would have been able to come to a conclusion in it that's confirmed later when they do talk about it yeah exactly it's confirmed later on that if she hadn't run away potentially it would have been a lot sounder for her she would have been a lot more confident and that i thought was really interesting the different dynamic there between her and her father. The reason for that partly is because he believes that Gwen, well, are we saying Spider-Gwen? What's the official? (laughs) Spider-Woman she goes by. Spider-Woman, there we go. It's not Spider-Gwen or Spider-Woman. Spider-Woman. That Spider-Woman killed Peter. And that's been his mission. The secret has been kept for so long now after this pursuit 
that you can't do that reveal because it's a betrayal. It's been his, not his life's work, but his career for the last, can't remember how many years that they say, has passed since. That is what his focus has been on, is catching Spider-Woman, and she's been there the entire time. It's a sort of betrayal on the other side, which is different from Miles's relationship with his father as Spider-Man. They're hanging out over the blast site for a bit, having a chat. There's no intent there on him arresting Spider-Man. That's not there in that story. So it's slightly different in Miles's coming out as opposed to Gwen's. Yeah. And as you say, she runs from her problems mm. rather than faces them. She has the opportunity to skip dimensions when he finds out and she takes it rather than seeing what happens, finding out what her dad will say, how he'll react. And maybe the fact that he reacts the way he does is because he's had a few months to cool down in the interim. And you don't really pick up the fact of, I have no idea where you were, what was going on, just lost my daughter. What was he telling people? Where's Gwen? Ah, She's at home, it's fine. Yeah, she's not feeling very well. She's got spots, she doesn't want to be seen. She hasn't been at school in like eight months or whatever, (laughs) however long she's away, but it doesn't matter, it's all good. It's a really fascinating dynamic and I love the way they set it up. People have been talking online about how she might be a trans character. I definitely see that. I don't think it's a literal thing though. She does have a protect trans lives or something like that banner in her room. It's behind her at one point. So she's certainly an ally, if not trans but i think you can see the superhero struggle through a gay or trans lens quite easily because it is about feeling othered or feeling like you have to hide part of yourself and not letting yourself really connect to people for that reason because you're hiding that part of yourself she says it precisely people can only know half of who i am i think the fact that the film leaves it up to the audience to decide whether gwen's trans or not is awesome i think it's great that they leave it that ambiguous but it also just feeds into the whole notion of othering and feeling like you're something that people might reject for whatever reason. So that's definitely in there. And the fact that she drifted further and further away from her dad because she felt like she couldn't be honest with him. And I love that at the start of the film, before he finds out, the way they talk to each other, there's a bit of an awkwardness. There's a bit of a distance to it. She does hug him quite freely. So she expresses that affection in ways that Miles doesn't actually. But there is something that they both know is left unsaid between them. And I found that really interesting. And then the fact that she presses pause in that relationship by running from it, she isn't really called out on it as such. I wonder if that will come into play in the next film in some way. But it was a really fascinating start to the film. And I was sitting there watching it thinking, God, I would love to see two hours of just this. would absolutely love that. It was an incredible opening to the film. It was really good. And like you say, you could almost have had a film of just that story, Gwen's origin story taking you up until this film and i wonder if that was ever a pitch at some point i imagine it might have been that this story has been planned out for more than just the 15 minutes at the start here despite the fact that we've seen a sort of cliff notes version i would still watch it (laughs) (laughs) i would absolutely still watch it i hadn't really thought of it like that before but then i suppose i used the term coming out as spider-man yeah. Coming out as Spider-Woman as well When I was describing it earlier on So yeah, you absolutely can have that allegory in there And is she a trans ally or trans person? I agree with you I'm glad that they've left it up to the audience to decide Maybe there'll be a play into that in the next film But I also just like showing that you can have allyship in a film Showing that you can be a supporter of different movements Without being the party yourself And I think that's powerful to show as well 
and the coming out thing has been a staple of superhero stuff for a very long time, mm. even before they were starting to label it as such. I think it's been there since pretty much the very beginning. One of the more overt examples that certainly got noticed was in X-Men 2, when Iceman's parents were questioning them about being a mutant. And they used lines like, have you just tried not being a mutant? Which apparently Ian McKellen fed into because that's a very common thing that gay people get asked when they come out to people that don't readily accept them. Have you tried not being that? Have you tried something else? Brian Singer's problematic and always has been apparently in those films, but that was a good, I guess, early version of that. And I want to say it's evolved ever since, but I'm not sure it actually has because I don't think we've ever had that level of depth in a lot of these stories because we haven't really had a lot of secret identity stories ever since, have we? The Amazing Spider-Man sort of did it, but not quite. And the MCU just threw away secret identities in their first film. They didn't really mess with that in any real way. Pretty much. And then Tom Holland's Spider-Man, it was kind of used as a bit of a gag that he gets discovered rather than revealing himself a lot of the time. Yeah. I suppose you kind of got it in Daredevil, the Netflix one. Well, that's true, actually. I didn't think of that. It kind of feels like this film's making up for a lot of lost ground in covering these ideas, actually. These ideas should be more prominent and should be thrown in there because it allows people to feel seen and represented in these things but it doesn't seem to make it in very often maybe it's an examination we need to have at some point about some other superhero properties that we could look at and wonder if it is representing these ideals in different ways it could be an interesting thing to look back at but certainly from the Gwen point of view I thought they did it pretty perfectly with me having no real direct experience of anything like that and I felt like it was being handled sensitively and it was very moving in the way that they did it and the other thing I like about Gwen is just how cool she is. <laughs> I love how competent she was in that opening fight sequence. It almost seems like part of her relationship to her dad when she's Spider-Woman is the fact that she keeps webbing him to stuff. <laughs> she's like, hey, Captain, how's it going? And webs him up to a wall or something. And then when he gets himself free, she does it again with an R-quip. So it feels like that's their thing or she's made it their thing. I quite like that. I guess it's one of those advantages of a secret identity as well you get to make fun of your dad and he doesn't know you're doing that i like that as well but yeah she is just really cool everything about her is just really cool and i say that not being cool <laughs> it does help that Haley steinfeld voices her as well because she is undeniably cool being a drummer in that as well that's pretty cool <laughs> they keep adding layers of cool to gwen <laughs> I really enjoyed the fact that they focused a lot on her in this film, opening it with her and making her, I would say, close to a co-lead in this film. As much as, obviously, a lot of this is Miles' story, you see a lot through Gwen's eyes and Gwen's story as well. I think if you were add up to minutes of screen time, it would be pretty close. I definitely think so. And definitely for the character development in here, between the both of them, they both get a lot of character development going in here. Yeah, like I say, she's miles, but slightly in the future. Mm. Well, not quite a dark future, but a, a cautionary future, shall we say. Don't follow Gwen's example, because she's made a lot of mistakes in how she's handled this whole thing. They both have parents that were trying to reach out to them, that were trying to understand them. So there's this element of Miles should tell his parents who he really is, because they want to know and they want to help him through it. And the same Gwen's dad is as well. And I think it's very deliberate that they're both isolated Miles has Ganky, who's his roommate, but they don't seem to be that close. And then when he's asked about his friends, he says, there's Peter, he left town. There's Gwanda, because that's what she goes by in that universe for some reason. 
It was just a mistake she made in the first one, so I like that callback. She left town as well, and Gwen has no friends. She never managed to make another friend after Peter died, until Miles. So she's that loner at school. And you get a quick look at what she might be like at school, as in it's not that everybody hates her, it's just that she's a bit of an outcast. She's a voluntary outcast as well, which is how I looked at the Andrew Garfield version of Peter Parker. He's not an outcast because people don't like him, he's an outcast because that's the way he is. This handsome, well-dressed boy with great hair is a social outcast because he chooses to be, or he's just (laughs) kind of ended up that way. Gwen's a bit like that as well, I think. She says as much. She says, I never made another friend after Peter, and the implication is she didn't try. Or didn't want to risk it, potentially. There's that too. After getting close to someone like that, do you want to risk going through that pain again? Yeah, and she attaches herself to Miles because he can take care of himself. It seems like he understands her or is able to understand her in ways that other people aren't. I love the reunion scene where they were swinging through the city and she was challenging him to see how he'd moved on. (laughs) How he had developed his powers. Yeah. The shot, again, talking about beautiful frames that you want to mount on your wall of them on the rooftop sitting upside down with the city as the sky at that point because they're upside down was again another beautiful shot and the way they were walking around the roof at the top i really enjoyed that that was very good fun i love it when they do these things that will be natural to them because of their powers sitting upside down feels natural to them because they can stick to things the only time you get that in live action is in the amazing spider-man actually you get that scene where he's scribbling his costume ideas or something like that and he's sitting in the corner on the ceiling because it just feels natural to him i guess it's just an instinct now and there is that element there with Gwen and Miles. I love the way the camera follows her as she walks round in a circle and ends up upside down. I'm just sitting there thinking, I would really wish people would try this in live action. It'd look amazing. Maybe. Maybe (laughs) it would just look like green screen crap. Depends how much time they spend on it. Yeah, green screen or really shonky CGI person doing it. The technology's getting there. It probably is getting close to doable at this point. You could probably do something like it with wires, I guess, because you are only getting a person to walk upside down. Just getting someone to walk upside down. (laughs) Just. Compared to some of the other things they might try. Sure, Craig. Just getting someone to walk upside down, getting pulled by a set of wires and pulley weights. Yeah, just. Okay. Do it like an Inception with the rotating corridor they built. Okay, yeah. A bit of green screen at the end to make it look like the city, okay. There we go. Challenge whoever... We'll do it next week. We'll have it filmed next week and up on our YouTube. Stay tuned for the Neil Before Pod Spider-Man fan film where we attempt that <laughs> with someone who's afraid of heights. That'll work. I can't see us dying from this. No, not at all. Gwen buying into Miguel's mantra as well. I really like the fact that going to see Miles was something that she wasn't supposed to do but she broke protocol to do it so she's a bit rebellious in that way and then when Miles finds out that he's a mistake or perceived to be a mistake and that's why he would never get let into the club Gwen says to him I didn't know how to tell you the how to tell you thing was the great part added to that sentence you could have just ended it at I didn't know and then for some reason Gwen hadn't been told or Maybe she's lying, I don't know, but I like the... No, she's up front. I knew and I just didn't know how to tell you. I was never going to tell you this. Very nice touch. And you know, she started wearing Converse when she went into the Spider Society. She wasn't wearing them before. I did not spot the change in footwear. Because <laughs> <laughs> she had those like ballet shoes as part of her costume before that. And then she put on Converse. I don't know why. Someone did point out online the amount of times that she steals people's clothes through the film. So I'd like to pick up maybe that she's got those Converse off of someone else. Maybe. 
Because she steals Miles's jacket at the end, doesn't she? She's got Miles's jacket, and I'm sure she had something from Spider Punk as well at one point. So yeah, there's all the different outfits. So maybe the Converse came from that. I don't know who to credit with this. I can't remember who posted it, but someone said online about when she first appears in Miles's universe. And she's sitting on his bed and she's wearing that big jacket or that hoodie or whatever it is and her shoes. And it's, this is the most white girl thing ever. She goes to a stranger's house and sits on their bed with shoes on. <laughs> it's one of those things, I guess. But yeah, the Miles Gwen relationship is good. Do you think they're heading down the couple route or do you think it's going to be the good friends thing? There's certainly an attraction there from Miles's direction. Well, the art book, she's definitely on his mind. I like that she doesn't make him feel weird about that. She looks through the pictures and says, I missed you too. Finding a sketchbook where every second picture is you. Yeah, I missed you as well. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if Gwen thinks of Miles that way or not. She was definitely keen to see him, but then has obviously been told, you're not allowed to visit here, you're not allowed to speak to Miles, you're not allowed to interact with Miles. So maybe she's closed that off in her head a little bit up until that point. But now that this is happening and the story's developing, maybe that does become a potential option. I would quite like it to just go in the friendship route. I think it might leave on that note. I think there might be a pursuit of some kind, but I think it probably will be left with, I need to be in my universe, you need to be in yours, but we can stay friends, we can stay in touch. So you don't think they'll do an Arrowverse solution? I'm just going to press this button and it will always take me exactly where I need to go in this other universe with no explanation about how the button works. You could be left in that way. I think the problem is that leaving those kinds of MacGuffins around, it often ends up with, well, if these MacGuffins exist, then there's no problems ever because you can always count on eight spider people that you have close contact with being able to appear whenever you need help. That's the problem with those MacGuffins, as we've discussed before on any of the CW ones. The bigger you make your expanded universe, the simpler every problem should be to solve because there's people that you can call on from anywhere and everywhere. And I think we've talked about in some of the MCU stuff as well. Even in Ant-Man, they make a bit of a joke of it about going, well, first thing I think we should do is call the Avengers. Yes, thank you for uh, addressing this right away. First thing we should do is call the competent people. (laughs) It depends on where you're taking the rest of the stories going forward, doesn't it? We're very much getting into speculation for the next film, but are you going to have your multiverse cut off again? That was very much how they left the last film until post-credits. We've all got to go back to our own places and we will never see each other again. I don't know if they would do a similar beat at the end of this and going, oh no, this time, seriously, we're not going to have a multiverse. I don't think they would do that. So I think there's potentially going to be a little crack in the door, maybe, to let them communicate in some way. In the comics now, they have once a year almost where the Spider-Verse is in danger and all the spiders have to yeah. unite to solve whatever, trying to tear it apart this year. I don't know if they'll cut it off at the end. Or they just turn it into like a social thing, as in, yeah, we can visit other universities and just hang out for a bit. We don't have to make too big a deal of it. We've got these watches, they work. We'll just keep using those and going from universe to universe. I don't know. God, I can't wait to see part two. It's going to be a long wait. Uh, yeah, I'm desperate for the next part. But yeah, looping us back around to where we started, I'm not sure where the relationship will go. I'm a bit like you. I don't think they're going to end up together by the end of it. I'm open to it, but I don't think it's going to happen. No, nah, but there's certainly attraction on Miles' side and possibly on Gwen's, don't know. Quite like some of the jealousy of... Who's Hobie? Why are you staying in his universe? What's going on there? Little references here and there, just to point out how jealous he was. And Gwen just rolls with it every time it happens as well. I like that too. The whole, you've drawn how many pictures of me thing could have been a 
mm-hmm. source of tension for if it was a CW show, but half a season probably. But just, yeah, I missed you too. It's fine. I get it. You're drawing pictures of me. It's cool. There's also a picture of the pig here. So I'll try not to read too much into this. <laughs> we had our villain. The spot. I love the progression of the spot. I love how he started off as being your Tuesday afternoon villain. <laughs> Ten minutes to start the film to catch you up with what's going on. He's that villain. He's useless to begin with. He doesn't know how to rob an ATM. Well, he defeats himself initially, which is great. Shows how powerful he is by kicking his own ass, which I thought was very fun. And he's just generally incompetent. And I like that the folly of Miles was that he didn't take him seriously enough. And that's what motivated him to get more powerful and get back at him because he really wanted to be Miles' nemesis. So he keeps seeking out more power. It's a bit like the Joker in Lego Batman, in a way. I want to be your top villain. So I'm going to do a lot of terrible things to make sure that you pay attention to me. I love that we're doing a bit of a send up of the Spider-Man movie trope in particular of the villain must have a personal connection to Spider-Man in some way. And they did it through, I'm the guy you hit with the bagel in the last film, which I'm sure (laughs) no one was thinking was going to lead to a villain origin story when they created it at the time. But it folds in neatly. I'm the scientist you hit with a bagel and I'm really annoyed at you for this. And I went back at you for it. I like that. And bolting on that, I feel like you ruined my life because you broke the collider while I was there and I got all these holes and now I can portal places. I love that set. I'm the same as you. Obviously, the introduction was the rather silly things like the loaves of bread falling through his stomach (laughs) and trying to rob the ATM and Miles not taking him as much of a threat at the beginning. But despite the fact he ends up tied up towards the end gives him a good run for his money up until that point he's a little bit beyond the easy villain he doesn't go down easy eventually miles hasn't tied up the only reason he escapes at that point is because miles has to go off to his meeting (laughs) and he gets away but yeah him wanting to be his nemesis you don't even know who i am how dare you i'm this guy and miles still being i still don't know who you are (laughs) I really enjoyed that. His motivation then to be, well, I'm just going to become so powerful and I will take everything from you to make you recognise me and recognise what you've done to me, I thought was very strong. And obviously tying in again to the multiverse stuff, it's the right villain for this multiverse story. It reminded me a bit of a couple of things. In the 90s Spider-Man cartoon, the episode that introduces Mysterio, Mysterio was talking about, you're in my life, Spider-Man, and Spider-Man doesn't remember him. Mostly because he's wearing the costume and when they met he didn't have the costume. But once he learns the backstory, he remembers and he gets challenged on it. And he says, hey, I get this thing a couple of times a week. I can't remember all of them. There's an episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as well where the... I forget the name of the villain, which is funny as well. He gives this anger-filled speech to Coulson about how Coulson created him. Coulson says to him, I have no idea who you are. I don't remember you. Cool origin story, bro, but I don't remember who you are. (laughs) I like that. This thing that was the most important thing that ever happened in my life is just something that you've forgotten about. And the contrast there. I want to be taken seriously, but you don't take me seriously. It's almost a bit like Electro in Amazing Spider-Man 2 as well. I was just about to say that. I want to be taken seriously. I want to be noticed, all that stuff. And ends up going too far the other way. Maybe this is the better version of that story, actually. And they did it in like 10 minutes of screen time, whereas The Amazing Spider-Man 2 couldn't do it in nearly three hours of screen time. That's another thing about this film. The amount of plot stuff's in there without any of it feeling superfluous or underdone. How did they do this? It's witchcraft. Maybe we're just so not used to people putting this level of effort into what they're doing that when they actually put that level of effort in, we think it's not possible. 
Yeah, it does have a ridiculous amount of pace to it at some points, and there is stuff that maybe can drift over a little bit, but I'm kind of with you on that. It packs a lot in there, and like I say, I think it's something that's going to stand up for umpteen rewatches where you spot, excuse the pun, you spot different bits in the story as you go. I think part of it is that it trusts its audience to be able to follow what it's doing. It doesn't linger on anything for a second longer than it needs to. It gets in there, makes its point and gets out. That's something the first film did really well. The idea of the thing that they have to plug into the collider and make it stop working. They don't spend a long time explaining what it is. They just write it off as, yeah, it's a goober, we plug it in and we win. It's for kids. Kids understand that. Kids get storytelling. So why is it when we become adults, we don't get that treatment anymore? Yeah, we don't. You get it sometimes. The rabbit's foot, Mission Impossible, stuff like that. We're not actually going to explain what this is. We're just going to give it a bit of a title and then just run with it. Just pretend this is really, 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 really serious, okay? Just assume it's going to end all life as we know it. I like the way they did that. And in the first film as well, they did really good at the rapid-fire introductions of each character. You didn't have to have the elongated story. Once they had done the three different intro stories... It was like, okay, let's just fast forward through this one and bashed it out. And they kind of did similar with this, but they were able to introduce odd characters and give them quick intros, which I think saved a lot as well. And it works in the format of this story. Don't get me wrong, you couldn't deploy this in every kind of film that exists. It works really, really well here, where you can get a quick introduction to a character. But you can adopt the principles in other films, mm. as in trust your audience a bit, don't feel like you need to over-explain these things that really don't matter. We saw the new Transformers recently, for example. How much time does that spend telling you what a transwarp key is? Do we <laughs> care? Do we actually care what this thing is and what it does? Are we okay with two factions of fighting robots want to find it? Because it will do this. <laughs> we don't need any more than that, really. And I think these principles are... Everywhere it's kids' storytelling. Just trust them to keep up and follow it and understand what's going on. And then you can spend the rest of your screen time on more important stuff, like character development or relationship building or all these other things. I'm a big fan of that approach to storytelling, the my audience is smart approach to storytelling. <laughs> Especially these things, because we've seen so many superhero stories and we talk about how repetitive they get. Okay, what MacGuffin are they hunting down this time? And how's that going to loosely feed into whoever's character arc and all that stuff? This just feels on a different level, more sophisticated somehow. Let's talk a bit about other spiders then. Who were your favourite side spiders? Gwen and Miles and Miguel, they're the main ones. Peter B is there but he's far less prominent than he was in the first one probably going to be way more prominent in the next one what did you think of some of the other spiders who were your highlights got to shout out spider punk because spider punk features a lot in this one and i just thought the style of spider punk was really cool i liked that he's not just saying he's an anarchist he's very much an anarchist <laughs> in there as well i was like oh, he's kind of going down with miguel's system whatever that is that oh no he's not going with miguel's system he's like yeah down with this and he's off the animation style of that character well we've kind of talked about it a little bit the mashing of different animation styles is super impressive and spider punk was definitely a part of that as well where spider punk is kind of made up of all those different punk rock posters that you've seen and i read an article that it took 
two or three years to develop the technology to deliver Spider-Punk the way that they wanted. They had to make a system where they could do a rough animation and then it would fill in the animation with the different punk rock posters. And even when the character isn't moving, the artwork for the character is moving, if that makes sense. It was just really, really impressive. There's an article about it where the directors are talking about creating Spider-Punk and the effort that went into that. I just really enjoyed that character. I like that it came into play at the end where it's yeah actually I've been stealing all these bits from Miguel so I can create my own means of travel because I'm not paying him and I'm not letting him control me getting to hop between universes I've made my own very smart and a lot of fun as well a lot of the little sly lines and stuff that were getting thrown about from Spider-Punk were fun watching him was freaking me out because of that just the constantly shifting animation stuff and I'm just thinking how did you do this? Yeah, how? Turns out three years of development work for technology specifically for this. Yeah, it was the, the Sex Pistols-esque cut-out magazines and whatever chic that they had that was that was really cool. And he's a great example of the type of storytelling I was talking about. They don't linger on him for any longer than they have to. You get the sense of who he is very, very quickly. And then when he ends up feeding into the plot in a significant way later on, it makes sense because you know who he is, you know what he stands for, and you know why he would have done something like this. And it didn't need to spend too much time on that at all. I thought it was excellent. And some of the stuff that he came out with, I love this anti-establishment stuff that he was saying. I hate the AM, I hate the PM, I hate the government, I hate the establishment, I hate comedy, but I also love comedy because that's edgy as well. All this contradictions, all the stuff that he was saying, just an excellent character. Yeah, it's the fact that he realises that he's contradicting himself as well. That also works. It's also (laughs) anarchy. Yeah, I'm an anarchist against myself. That's how deep I am into it. Some of the deeper moments he had as well, the conversation he had with Miles where he talked about coming from a loving household. His parents brought him up in a loving household. They loved him, etc. And he said, oh, that means you're not ready for everybody else. That was a really cutting line. And again, that tells you a lot about him. It tells you that he didn't come from that. Or maybe he did. And he learned the hard way that the real world sucks. You could read it either way, but... It tells you so much about him. It tells you that something gave him that lesson and it was a hard lesson to learn, but he's trying to pass it on. So that's his canon event. It was great. I'm trying to think of other lines he's in. This is the problem. I can remember. I would benefit from being able to watch back to get all the lines. Spider India, we've already discussed, but he was good. I like how breezy his life was. He's like, I wake up, I've got perfect hair. I work out, but not too much. I don't want to be too buff. Good friends with the police captain. Here's my girlfriend that he doesn't know about and all that stuff. Great. Yeah, here's the traffic, here's the rest of the traffic, here's more traffic. Here's the, what was it, was it the Museum of Stuff the British Stole? <laughs> Which was a particular <laughs> line out what was funny. Here's a museum of all the things the British took away. Just Mumbatting this sprawling, multi-layered metropolis that just looks like chaos. But again, done in a different style and a lot of fun. I'm trying to remember, it was it was the chai tea line, which I liked as well, because it was kind of playing on what Miles had said earlier on about the ATM machine. Don't call it an ATM machine, because that's a machine machine. And then it's the chai tea and nan bread. It's one of those things, though, we watch it with our Western sensibilities and think, yeah, we suck. <laughs> yeah, we're bad. We're awful. Turns out we're really bad. Our supermarkets have labelled as nan bread. So bread, bread. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's great. A bit of cultural difference thrown in there. And it's a good thing for the kids to learn, I guess. It's a lesson thrown in very efficiently. Mm. Jessica Drew, the badass pregnant lady, at least some of the film, she wasn't pregnant when she appeared later because it was months later. There's no mention of what happened to the baby. 
that's an interesting one. I do wonder if that will feed into what she does in the next film. I wonder if she had to put her child away somewhere to commit to Miguel's spider society. Mm. She wasn't a huge character though, but I think she was memorable anyway. I liked her as a role model for Gwen. When Gwen thought she screwed up by letting the spot get away because she was wasting time, according to some people, with Miles. She was trying to avoid disappointing Jess. Mm. So it was less about what's Miguel going to think of me. It's more like what Jess is going to think of me. So I like that. Great seeing a pregnant woman just doing stuff, still being a superhero. Badass pregnant woman, yeah. Yeah. There was quite a few of non-traditional body shapes in this film, actually. The cleanup crew that Miguel sends into Mumbatan, they were all of different shapes and sizes. And then throughout the Spider-Verse hub, or whatever they called it, the lobby or something, they had a variety of looks there as well. It's good to see. Mm. Big people in costumes, good to see. It feeds into that variety, doesn't it? The idea of, yeah, you don't have to conform to this narrow look at what superheroes can be. It can be all shapes and sizes. It's pretty cool. What did you think of Lego Spider-Man? Lego Spider-Man was a lot of fun, but it was only after the film that I got true appreciation for Lego Spider-Man. Did you hear about how Lego Spider-Man came about? Is it a fan creation or something like that? This fan that built the Lego set? A 14-year-old animated, using Lego, the first Spider-Verse trailer. Oh, right, okay. When the director saw this, they then commissioned him to make that cutscene of Lego Spider-Man, and that's how it ended up in the film because they saw his animated version of the trailer and then he created that. I just love that. What a story. It's so good. I'm trying to remember. I did scribble down the name somewhere. Preston Mutanga. I'm probably butchering the surname. It'll be in the show notes. Send me the link after this. Animated by a 14-year-old. And it ended up in there. It was fun because it was done in a similar style to the Lego movie, obviously. Stop-motion-esque, yeah. The stop-motion-esque, plus doing their own sound effects, you know, the little beep-boop for the phone, the wristwatch thing, and making all the sound effects. Also deploying, of course, J.K. Simmons. Get me pictures of Spider-Man. I think someone said that that wasn't re-recorded, that was just taken from the original recording. So they just lifted it from the other film. <laughs> but whether that's true or not. I think that one was, but there was some dialogue elsewhere in the film that I think wasn't archived stuff. Yeah, was there not a cutscene somewhere else? Was it one of them that had been caught, maybe? It might have been in Gwen's universe, where he spoke. Maybe in Gwen's, yeah. It was in one of them, anyway. There was definitely some new J.K. Simmons stuff that was in there. But yeah, that stuff was from... I think Spider-Man 3 in the Lego universe. I love when he was talking to Miguel, and Miguel was like, you're one of our best agents, Peter. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> this Lego guy. The other one that's worth pointing out is the Spider-Woman that's in a wheelchair. There's a character created by, I forget the name, I'll look it up and put it in the show notes, and give me the Lego thing for the show notes as well. Um, but it's a character created by a wheelchair user, and then they put her in this film briefly, just as a, again, different shapes and sizes, different setups that was cool and there was so much in there i think we did a breakdown of the trailer at one point and pointed out a bunch of spider people that were in that and never in my head did i imagine that there would be so many different bits in there there was a peter parked car oh that was such a good pun <laughs> which is an incredible pun and apparently is from a comic it wasn't created from this this is actually from the, the books i recognize the car because it is the spider-mobile yes amazing spider-man fairly early on 
but apparently there's a story and it's an Uncle Mercedes Benz. <laughs> it's all that in the story, apparently. I love that. There was so much that flashed up on screen. You got a bit of Ben Riley in there as well. Oh, he was so good. I'm so dark because of my troubled past. <laughs> Very Todd McFarlane, Clone Saga, 90s. Yes. Comment. Their internal monologue is just obvious stuff that they're already doing. Like, they, oh, there's a boys in the alley. I'm going to check out that alley. Well, yeah, we can see that. There's a visual medium. <laughs> yeah, we can see it. Voiced by Andy Samberg. Yes. I saw his name in the credits. I was like, who did he play? Because I didn't pick it up when I was watching the film. Jack Quaid as Gwen's Peter. Ah. Is it possible for Jack Quaid to be in anything more? <laughs> it feels like every day of his life, he must be filming something or recording something. He's also a Nepo baby. I'm not going to say his talent hasn't been a factor in his success, but he's Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan's son. So I imagine that hasn't hurt. <laughs> he was that one. I'm trying to think of some other voice talent that we got in there. We did get the PS4 Insomniac Spider-Man. He was one of the anomaly ones. He was stuck in the force field cage thing. Next to him was the Atari, or certainly very old console. It might not be Atari, but the first Spider-Man game it was the Green Goblin in that. Just the green blocks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's Video Man from Spider-Man and these amazing friends. There's all these references. Various rhinos, including an actual rhino. You do need to watch it frame by frame to just see what's going on. Yeah, there was so much in there. The different spider people that they had in there from all the different games and the different formats. Like you say, the animated TV stuff was in there as well. It was impressive. The amount that they managed to fit into that. It was really, really impressive. They've not really left any stones unturned in there, I would say. There's a couple of notable live-action exceptions, but there's a second film to come, so I'm not really saying that they've, <laughs> they've slipped anything out. Yeah, well, you got footage of Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield. Mm. There was no sign of Nicholas Hammond that I'm aware of, who was the first live-action Spider-Man. Mm. And... Tom Holland, I imagine, is being saved for the next one. You would suspect they did fit a load in there. And anything in my head that I'm like, oh, but they didn't do it, I imagine, is probably in there if you freeze frame somewhere. I think we need to stop going into these things being worried that they're going to be too big and, and the actual story's going to get lost on it. Because we said that about No Way Home and it was very much not the case. We said that about this and it definitely wasn't the case. And we said it about The Flash, which also wasn't the case. That's true. It's additional flavour to it, isn't it? It's, it's additional hundreds and thousands sprinkled on top. And I pretty much had to accept very, very early into when he jumps into the Spider-Verse that I am not going to catch everything that's on this screen. I didn't catch everything <laughs> that was in the trailers. Never mind everything that's going to be in this for the next 30, 40 minutes. It's not happening. Even when certain stuff was coming up on screen, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I didn't even get the chance to read that before it disappeared. <laughs> yeah. I liked what they did with Peter B. Parker, mm. even though he wasn't in it massively. I love that he's just a boring dad, as in the dad that bores you to tears. He's the guy that you mute on Facebook because you can't look at any more photos of his kids. <laughs> he's that guy isn't he you see all the photos hundreds and hundreds of photos that look almost identical but you're not allowed to say that i did like that i liked that his interaction with miles was what convinced him he could be a dad i thought that was a nice touch putting that in there the fact that he still takes the baby out when he's then going to help miles at the end i questioned <laughs> that slightly i was like by this point you've got the baby home this isn't the fact that you had the baby with you and then hilarity ensued this was you took the baby with you don't tell your mom yeah don't tell your mom but i'm taking you on this this isn't something that happened by accident this time this is me just choosing to do this 
I love it. It's, do you want to see some photos? No, she's right there. I know you look at photos and <laughs> see her. She's right there. Gwen's even fed up. Everybody's fed up of him parading the kid around. And there was little suggestions that he's perhaps not fully into Miguel's outlook on the multiverse. Because you get the bit where everybody's chasing after Miles and then he does that quick look to the side by anticipating where he's actually going. Mm. And they have that open conversation about the reason I'm a dad is because of you, because this child might grow up to be like you. It seems like he's not into all this. And he's kind of regarded as a bit of a joke as well, as far as Miguel's concerned. I'm not going after him. It's like, not you. Yeah, he's not being taken as seriously as some of the others. And he's wearing his bathrobe, the pink bathrobe, just to sell how much of a goof he is. But as we saw in the first film, he's a bit of a goof, he's a bit of a burnout, but when it counts, he's there for you. He knows what he's doing. He's still Spider-Man. He is as competent as get-out. He knows what he's doing. And then he's going to be probably more prominent than the next one. It seems so, because they pulled together the original crew by the end of this one, which was nice to see. Yeah, plus a few extras. Hmm. That was super cool. Any other spiders we missed that you want to draw attention to? There was a T-Rex in a spider costume at one point. <laughs> I think the line was, can this get any weirder? And then a T-Rex in a <laughs> Spider-Man costume appears. There was bits like that. I've probably forgotten some of my favourite bits. Like I say, I've only seen it once, unfortunately. So apologies, because there'll be people listening to this going, I can't believe you've not mentioned, insert name of Spider-Man that they really, really love. I apologise right now. I like the Avatar one. She was cool. Oh yeah, the sort of digital person at home. I'm at home eating sweets or whatever it is, and I'm also here. The VR Spider-Man. Or Spider. And then Penny Parker is a new robot. That's cool. Mm. She's not in it very much, but she has a new robot. There was a lot of them. I liked seeing Spectacular Spider-Man again and him getting a line. That was good. Yeah. Where's 90s Spider-Man though? Where's Chris Daniel Barnes' version of Spider-Man? Where's he? He was the original Spider-Man who travelled the multiverse. I don't know if you saw those episodes, but the last two episodes of the Spider-Man 90s cartoon is him teaming up with other versions of himself to fight a version of himself. Mm. So the original Spider-Verse is that maybe he'll show up and tell Miguel that he knows nothing about the multiverse because he's the original multiverse traveler. Mm. That'd be something. It'd be kind of out there because you're relying on your audience having seen this old cartoon by this point. But I'd love it. And that's why they should do it. Because I would love it. The ending. My only real criticism of this film is that the ending is, feels a bit drawn out. Those last 20 minutes, because I knew the To Be Continued was coming. It felt like it kept teasing me with, oh, it'll be now, this will be the last shot. Nope, still going. Oh, this will be the last <laughs> shot. Nope, there's another one. And so on and so on. It's not that I was bored or anything like that. I wonder if building the tension ended up actually being successful in that way by me wondering when the cut was coming and that creating tension by itself. But I did feel that the last 20 minutes could have been condensed slightly, perhaps. Potentially. To be honest, when I went into this, I completely forgot it was a part one. <laughs> I've talked about this being a part one. I've read about this being a part one. But I got so caught up in this film that I forgot. And then I got to a certain point where I was like, oh, well, this isn't finishing in this film, is it? They're not wrapping this story up within five minutes, are they? Well, this is going to be a rushed ending. Yeah, this seems like a massive misstep that they're building all this and then they're just going to, what, hit a button at the end and it's all done? And then he stops his dad from being crushed and Miguel sees the error of his ways, the end. Yeah, then he overloads the spot, Miguel sees the error of his ways, he gets accepted into the Spider Society, credits roll. This is going far too fast. <laughs> 
I kind of felt the same way as you, where I'm going, okay, well, if this isn't wrapping up here, then when are they going to say cut? And they had the couple of sort of false endings where he escapes and you're like, okay, well, he's going to escape and get home and then going to go into part two. We're going to get a to be continued. And then it's, no, he's going to reveal that he's Spider-Man to his mum and then it's going to be to be continued. I thought the bit where he was racing across town, there's a bit where he jumps at the camera and that felt like a final shot to me. Oh, and then roll credits. Yeah, exactly. There was a lot of bits like that in there and you're like, okay, this is going to be the bit. Or Gwen going and getting Peter and then roll credits. Are you in? Yes, I'm in. A moment like that and it didn't happen there. Maybe you could have condensed that ending bit. I've got so much faith in them that there will be probably a reason that they've taken it to that stage before starting the next film. I think they needed to go up until the Miles reveal because you're probably going to start the next film with I'm the Prowler, here's my story, beginning arc thing. Probably, yeah. I'm assuming at the beginning of the next one. Let me tell you about me. Let me take you back to the beginning and a bit of that story. And that's why they needed to end on that particular bit. But like you say, maybe they could have condensed that down a little bit. There was a lot of clues to the fact that he was in the different universe before it does the oh hey here he is but again i was kind of caught up in everything else that was going on and things were flashing up so quick on the screen you're like hang on was that the number that we saw before when they described it is that the number on the back of the spider i can't remember the number on the back of the spider all that sort of stuff it sort of flies through your head i've not got attention to detail as listeners to this podcast will well know there was bits where i was like okay he's, he's probably somewhere else but you still get a bit of a surprise when it's going on there's lots of hints on the way through but i thought that was quite good well played more than a hint as well, when he fires up the go-home machine or whatever it's called, it says DNA analysed Universe 42 or something like that, that comes up immediately. Yeah, that's exactly what I was saying. I couldn't remember the number of his universe, though, so it was like, the fact that it's flashing up 42 probably means that I should be paying attention to that number. <laughs> I'm thinking he's going somewhere else, but I can't remember what the number was. I think they sort of anticipated that people would miss that as well, so like you say, they do drop little hints here and there. Mm. And I love the cutting back and forth between Miles talking to his mother and it looking like Gwen was outside the window looking in, Mm. but she was outside the window in a different universe looking in at nothing because he wasn't there. It was a nice touch. There was other clues, like his room is different. It's laid out differently. His mother looks a bit different as well. There was other hints here and there, and then the glitching is where the, oh my God, he's in the wrong universe thing. Or I think Gwen says it first and then he glitches. The glitching is so inconsistent as well, isn't it? Sometimes it's happening all the time and sometimes it takes forever to happen again. It happens at the speed of plot, I think, is how Aaron would put it over if he was on this. It happens when it's convenient for the plot to have it happen. And it was the same in the last film as well, to be fair. It was not on a regular timer. One thing I wondered about in the last film was how could Gwen go to school for a week without accidentally (laughs) glitching in front of someone? It's one of those, ah, it doesn't matter. They did everything so well that I didn't even think about it. So the glitching's convenient in that moment because it does sell you on the, oh God, he's in the wrong universe. In that universe, the spider was taken before it could bite who it was supposed to bite. Which, if you look at the flashback to that spider being stolen, it looks like it's about to bite that Miles Morales. You see the hairdo from the back that the other Miles has. So I think Miguel's going to learn that that universe was supposed to have a Miles Morales. Miles Morales is as valid as anybody else. There is a question around, why is it that Miles Morales can't be? Because not everybody there is Peter Parker. In fact, he replaced another Miguel O'Hara. So what's going on there? It's just something we'll keep coming back to. What is going on? What is the real answer behind all of this? The wrong universe with the Prowler reveal, you got to see his uncle Aaron again and Mahershala Ali reprising his role in the other universe. 
great. Also, the fact that the canon event didn't seem to happen in this universe yet. It hasn't imploded in on itself, which further tells you that Miguel is probably full of it. Mm -hmm. I thought it was an effective cliffhanger and Gwen going to get a team of spiders that she can trust to help Miles out was a great touch. Her final monologue is about, I never fit in in a band, so I started my own. Nice. So we'll get Nicolas Cage back in the next one, maybe. (laughs) Unless some of the spiders just never speak. Spider Noir, go do this. And he just thumbs up and then goes off and does it. He never speaks. <laughs> I think they'll bring him back. Well, surely. I'm assuming they'll bring him back. I like what they did. I mean, they could have really easily gone down the route by having all of them there and all of them in primary roles in this film. I think they did right by introducing another set of characters to show how expansive this is, rather than, we'll show you some scenes of other spider people, but mainly we're going to focus on the same ones that we focused on the last time. I think they did the right thing by having them there, because it kind of feels more like a betrayal to Miles, the fact that they are all involved as well, and he hasn't been invited adds into that but also you've focused on some other great characters that they've introduced us to and now in the next one you get to see the originals coming back to help out their pal yeah another piece of storytelling witchcraft that got me thinking when i was watching this as well more in relation to i revisited the first film after i saw this one because i couldn't get enough of this concept and it was the only thing i had access to so I rewatched it. I think this has been since pointed out online as well. Not by me, I hasten to add, but it has been pointed out. When Miles meets the Chris Pine Peter Parker or Spider-Man in his universe, they have the spider sense bit that reveals that they're connected. And in that scene, you see the colours change from green and purple behind Miles to the red and blue of Spider-Man. So it's the hint that maybe he was supposed to become the Prowler in his universe and then that destiny changed somehow. The witchcraft comes from the fact is. I wonder how much of this film or the rest of the trilogy was planned when they were making the first film. Because you could believe that the first film is a standalone experience all on its own. But everything fits together so neatly in this one. You can't help but wonder if it's a plan all along. I saw a similar post to you talking about the Prowler colours changing to the Spider-Man colours. And I was like, really? Is that in there? And it is one of those ones where you go, is this a happy incident? That this just happens the same thing as the bagel going across this was animated as a silly side gag it was not intended to be a villain origin story or was it <laughs> a bagel with a hole and he becomes a spot anyway <laughs> seeing how good these films are i would absolutely give them the credit of that being a subtle plant that happened from the first film that they've always intended that this is the way they would go that miles would have maybe become the prowler and that was the colors his uncle aaron's colors because he was so associated with his uncle that was Miles's way of thinking at the time and then he meets Peter yeah you can read it as that as well you can absolutely take it that that might have just been subtle tones at that time but then this just adds to that they've built upon a visual cue that they did maybe for a different reason in the first one but I'm also 100% happy to believe that hey we planned this all along they are geniuses and should be bowed in front of please let me see the next one. I just think there's so many smart things in there. I look forward to this one being picked apart as much as the first one for all those cues that we've missed throughout because I think this is another one that I'm going to end up re-watching umpteen times. I think I've said that already in this podcast, but let me just say it again. Well, I can't wait to get access to it again so I can watch it all the time. Just put it on on repeat on the Blu-ray player over and over again. Playing at 10% speed. (laughs) On repeat on every device I own at the same time. (laughs) That would be a lot of devices, actually. That would be insane. It's the only way you have to do it. It's the only way to consume it. It's the only way you might catch everything. Every screen you own displaying this. In terms of the bagel thing as well, there is an almost accidental 
it must be accidental. Or maybe the idea that in late, because it's animation, you can probably add these things in fairly late. The spot's origin is tied to a bagel. This is a multiverse story. And they had that billboard that was uh, Miles' Earth riff on everything, everywhere, all at once. That's above the spot's building. The everything bagel that was a big part of everything everywhere all at once oh yeah that's true the thing is like i said that lego piece was added in very very late to the film because that came out of someone recreating the trailer so that wasn't planned well in advance either it would not surprise me if there's some visual bits that have been thrown in there on some easier bits that they can add in yeah you can shove text on a billboard i would imagine fairly easy late on yeah, in comparison to some of the other technical marvels that they're doing. The Snyder Cut did that with the suicide prevention hotline thing. That billboard mm. that was very pointedly there. Morbius did it where they added stuff to the trailers and then took it out for the film. <laughs> References to Spider-Man. Yes! Pictures of Spider-Man, the murderer. Okay, no, he's not. He's not there. He's from the tree with us. Move along. Nothing to see here. This film acknowledges the existence of Venom, though. Mm. Where the spot goes to his universe for a minute, argues with the convenience store shopkeeper. Yes, I thought that was a fun scene. Actually, that was silly fun. I like steals that. gum, <laughs> but of course, it's not Venom's first foray into the multiverse either, because he was in No Way Home for a little bit. And Doctor Strange and Tom Holland's Peter Parker are referenced in this film as well. Mm. Which is one curiosity I did have, actually. None of these universities that feature Spider-Man or women, as far as we know, have other superheroes. Mm. There doesn't seem to be an Avengers anywhere. No Stark, no Thor, no anyone. Granted, we only get to see in detail a couple of universities, but still. I'm going to put it down to that. We only see a few universes, so I'm going to say that. It's not that they don't exist, it's that we're only seeing the ones where they don't. Because rights. (laughs) let's go with that rights issues that's the one dimensional barrier we can't cross is legal stipulation yeah what we're legally allowed to show in this is limited (laughs) i'm gonna say that's the reason but feel free to prove me wrong in the next film by filling it with alt universe other stuff they did mention doctor strange though so the other superhero characters are acknowledged yeah Have any of the other Spider-People that they've shown interacted with the Avengers? Surely. The Insomniac Spider-Man, the Avengers exist in his universe. Yeah, because they've got the tower and all that sort of business and that one. But they're not in the game. They're not in the game, but they're there. So, yeah, definitely they do exist in there. It's just that I think it's a right thing. Also, to be honest, when you've got that many Spider-People, I don't think you need to throw in random Avengers or whatnot for for the sake of it. In fact, I'm almost quite happy that they haven't, he says, before the next one comes out. I'm fine with that, to be honest. There is one theme I wanted to talk about that we didn't organically touch on as we were talking. We seem to have got all the other ones. Growing up, finding your path, forming an identity independent of your parents, we covered all that. Fandom gatekeeping, we covered that. Othering, we covered that. The only one we didn't cover was superheroes as authoritarian or police. And I think that's a really interesting one. It's something I've seen online as well, so I can't take full credit for this take as such. But it was sort of in my mind as I was watching it. Basically, since the birth of the MCU, we've seen this whole idea of superheroes forming some kind of peacekeeping force on Earth. The Avengers were nominally set up by S.H.I.E.L.D. in order to do that in the MCU. Or if you look at the Ultimate comics, that's exactly what they're set up to do. They're called the Ultimates there, not the Avengers, but same principle applies. They are set up to be a police force of sorts. 
And the DC films, in some ways, have added in the what do superheroes represent in this whole thing. Civil War was about we need to have the superheroes on the government payroll doing stuff for national interests and all that stuff. And what Miguel has set up as a spider police force of canon police, essentially. And of course, you've got Miles's dad, who is a police officer. So the idea is there. It's this concept of these characters have been reframed as agents of the establishment in some ways, as in they exist to prop up the status quo, which is what Miguel is trying to do. They exist to take on that role of a police force, of protectors, but only to a certain extent. Well, it's kind of close to the TVA kind of thing from Loki, isn't it? Yeah, that's there too. They're coming in and protecting canon events. It's very similar along that line. Yeah. Well, the whole universe getting wiped out, potentially, that brought to mind Loki. Well, they weren't trying to stop universes from ending. They were ending them themselves. These are a threat to the sacred timeline. We can't do this. Obviously, I think it's a very charged topic at the moment, the whole police force and should we trust them and things like that. And I think that very pointedly with Miguel's police force, no is the answer. We're not supposed to believe in the authority that they represent because they represent the wrong authority. I guess it's something that I didn't think too deeply about as the MCU was building up because well, we watched Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. started off as being this, we're agents of the establishment, this corrupt-ish government-sanctioned organisation. We get to go in and shatter people's freedoms and do whatever we want. And that seems cool because we're playing it's cool and Samuel Jackson looks cool. <laughs> Because it's Samuel L. Jackson, it's therefore allowed. I don't care that he's giving up my civil liberties, because he's cool. It's Samuel L. Jackson. He says it with authority in his voice, so we listen to him. Superheroes in that role is kind of scary when you think about it. These people with power that are fighting to keep things the way they are, which is bad. As in the world is bad the way it is and needs to be better. It kind of feels like they've slowly moved away from the whole sometimes superheroes are trying to represent the best of us or make us better or fight for a better world rather than Let's just fight to preserve the world we currently have, which is pointedly what Miguel's doing. It's interesting. Definitely interacts in a kind of authoritarian way. As far as wider and other films acting as a sort of police force, a sort of enforcement force, you kind of need an enforcement force of that kind because the threats have become that kind as well. The threats have escalated. You're fine with a standard police force up until all the villains now have superpowers, at which point the standard police force are now completely outmatched and outgunned. So you do need something else that fills that gap. And like you say, at one point that was S.H.I.E.L.D. and then Tony Stark set up on his own for a bit with the Avengers doing that what was it? Not a shield around the planet. What did he call it? A suit of armour around the world. A suit of armour around the world. That's it. Not a shield around the world. A suit of armour around the world. Of course it was a suit of armour. It was Tony Stark. God damn it. <laughs> it's the, I have a hammer so everything's a nail principle with Tony Stark. Yes. Therefore we need a suit. Everything needs to be armour. Everything needs to be armour because that's what I'm good at. That's where that comes from. The act of the establishment sort of thing. I don't know. It's an interesting one. Like I said earlier on, I still think Miguel is sinister. The fact that he's got not lower spider people. That sounds bad. <laughs> but sort of lesser Spider-Man acting as, yeah, you're my enforcer Spider-Man people. I've given you an outfit for you to wear to do this job. You don't get the independence of the other spider people. You're my goons, <laughs> my spider goons to stop this. I thought that was quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, I'm not too sure about that one. I don't know if it's been a deliberate thing that they've moved the superhero ethos into it. The reason people have become cynical about the police is that well, there's a number of reasons, but one of them is that they represent the preservation of a world that isn't working. 
and they can't be trusted by a lot of people because they want to preserve those things that don't work, all the racism, all these things that have become ingrained as part of society that we want to get rid of and move on from. You get that through Miles's dad as well. He makes reference to a better world that he wants to exist for his son to be in, which is ultimately why he is a cop, because he wants to create that better world or play a part in creating that better world. So in a way, he's the ideal policeman, isn't he? He's in it for the right reasons. suppose you don't get an alternative that isn't in it for the right reasons, although Miguel is probably that. He is an enforcer that is in this for the wrong reasons. He shouldn't be taking things on the way he's taking them on. We've not seen enough of why Miguel is doing what he's doing yet no. to see if it's, I am doing this for sinister reasons or I am doing this from a misplaced reason. I think he's going to be badly misguided, Jen. There'll possibly be some kind of redemptive moment. Yeah, it reeks of, I am doing this because of something good, but my methods are wrong. The method that I'm using is not correct. Or this is too extreme to achieve what I'm actually trying to achieve. I've got to accept my canon moment kind of thing, which I'm trying to prevent by doing all this. And it's the idea of even good ideals can be corrupted if you're not careful. For example, the police, they exist for good reasons. They exist to protect people. They exist to help people feel like they can be safe. They've got people out there that they can contact if they're in trouble and they will come and help them. Certainly in the two big examples I gave, the George Floyd Black Lives Matter movement inspiring action and this institutional racism that exists in the London Metropolitan Police and probably exists throughout Britain, throughout America, everywhere, is the corruption of those ideals. Because you put the wrong people in those positions, people get into it for the wrong reasons, and they act like a virus. They infect the whole thing. So I suppose Miguel is that top-down virus. He's infected all these spider people with his wrong-headed ideals, and they're all on the wrong path because of him. I don't know, is it the bad apple spoils the bunch kind of thing? Could be. We did touch on that earlier on, with how do you get all these spider people to agree to this situation? I think it's something that we should keep an eye on throughout other superhero products as well that we end up watching whether they're trying to pivot them into this pro-establishment space or whether they're in the space of being better we talked about it on superman and lois actually the idea that superman was making a point of rising above the authoritarian part of it remember in season two where it was the north korean sub that he saved and he gave it back to north korea and the military guy was like why did you give it back to north korea and he said because it's their submarine That's why I gave it back to them. Mm -hmm. It's the idea of not blindly representing something that may or may not be corrupted at this point. And I think we're due a massive revelation when it comes to Miguel on that one. Yeah, I think there's definitely a story that we've not been told yet in there. We've not seen the full origin stuff from him. We touched on it slightly. Part two, what do you think we're getting? You've said that you think we're going to get a comic book style My Name is Miles G. Morales, as he's credited, and (laughs) Prowler type summation i think we're going to get that as the intro so that we can not sympathize with uh, miles g but understand miles g i would say i think we're going to get the intro from his story leading into this one bringing us up to what he's now doing with our miles for want of a better term what else are we going to get from all that i mean i've already kind of summarized it a little bit with got our other spider friends who are going to go off and find them. They know what universe he's in, presumably. So we'll be able to go off and pick him up. But is he going to get picked up before Miguel finds him? Is it going to be Miguel that finds him? Or is it going to be Gwen that finds him first and all that sort of stuff? I read somewhere that there is a version of the Beyond the Spider-Verse script that has variants of Gwen in there. Mm. 
that is alluded to earlier in the film where she says in almost every universe, Gwen Stacy falls for Spider-Man and it doesn't end well, which is, of course, alluding to her original comic origin where she's not a spider person and is killed by the Green Goblin. Mm. Or possibly by Spider-Man, depending on what you read. In the original comic, she's thrown off the bridge and Spider-Man stops her from falling and snaps her neck. But there's some commentary that said after that the shock probably killed her before the web got anywhere near her. And they redo that in The Amazing Spider-Man, where it is definitely his web bringing her to a abrupt stop that causes her death. That's a very brutal moment, actually, in that movie. Mm. Maybe we'll get a sequence of Gwen looking at other versions of herself. So we'll get a clip of the Emma Stone death, perhaps. We'll maybe get some representation of the comic book Gwen. I kind of thought they were heading in that direction when they showed her dad dying, that original one, that comic panel of her dad being crushed. But no, they didn't. It'd be interesting if they do that next, because the growth of Gwen Stacy as a character is fascinating, actually. And I remember it was when we did questions from the audience that we had at the time. One of the questions that was asked when we did the Spider-Verse podcast originally was, when do you think it will happen that this version of Gwen replaces the traditional comic book version of Gwen, who was Peter Parker's girlfriend that was killed? And I said at the time, I think it's already happened because the Spider-Gwen stories were out in force. That's a long-running comic now. There'll be people that have no idea who the original Gwen is and will care because this is Gwen to them. So I think this powered version of Gwen has already supplanted the original. So I'll be interested if they want to pay service to that original in some way and feed it into whatever Gwen's going through in the next one. Mm. So I think we're getting that. Nicolas Cage. I really want Nicolas Cage. (laughs) Spider-Ham. Give us a bit more Spider-Ham, but not too much. Remember the light touch on Spider-Ham they did in the first film? That was perfect. I'm trying to remember what they called the dimension. They had a name for the dimension where Spider-Ham was able to pull out hammers and all that sort of stuff. Hammer space. Hammer space. The Vulture had access to it in this film. The Vulture had access to our space. I like that this is just a canon thing that Toons could have. <laughs> yeah, because it's a reference to Looney Tunes, I think, originally. Yeah, yeah. Where they can produce anything from their pockets, even though their pockets are just pockets. Or they're naked rabbits and they shouldn't have pockets. Never mind. Infinite-sized pockets. <laughs> so I want to see about that. Miles revealing his identity to his parents. That is definitely going to happen. Yeah, we need to see that. Perhaps some kind of deeper reconciliation between Gwen and her dad. Whether his dad does die or whether he can change the canon event, I think what they're setting up is the the canon's a load of bollocks and here's why. Yes. The one thing I noticed is, when did Miles' dad take on the Morales name? He wasn't Morales in the last film. He was Jefferson Davis in the last film. Oh, that's true. And in the game as well. Apparently that's a cultural thing. The cultures that Miles belongs to or is descended from, the mother's name is passed down or Mm. can be passed down. I didn't actually clock that, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, so that's what I think we're getting in the next one. Although I could be completely wrong, because I'm sure they're far cleverer than I am and have come up with a million things that I would never have considered. They do surprising things in these films. They surprise us and they go off and they do interesting stuff. So it would not surprise me that they don't do anything obvious that I have in my head and instead go off in a complete different direction. I imagine there's some bits that will be in there just for the payoff. Like you say, they're revealing to his parents and things. They're really building up towards that. So if we don't get some form of that, I'm going to feel a little bit cheated, to be honest. Well, they sort of cheated us from the reveal in this film, didn't they? Because yes. they did it. They did the big emotional speech and it's, what are you talking about? I'm not the mother that can understand this. Yeah, but like you say, we were kind of cheated out of it in this one, so you want the real 
reaction in the next one. Presumably we're going to find out more about Miguel, we're going to find out why this is going on, and then it's all going to come apart, presumably. I don't know how it's going to get left. Part of the thing that works really well in these films is Miles's interaction with these other characters, and if you close off the multiverse, then you're leaving Miles with a pocket of stuff that he's got. But that's not necessarily a bad thing, because they introduced a bunch of new characters in this, albeit spider characters, and we still enjoyed it a lot. I don't know. I'd be happy if after Beyond the Spider-Verse they said, you're going to get a Miles film, you're going to get a Gwen film, and they want to interact. Yeah, we can go off with any of these characters that we want. We're going to go both. We're going to do a Gwen and we're going to do a Miles film, and there's going to be no interaction between the two, but here is the story. One thing I definitely want is more sequences like that vulture fight at the start with the (laughs) parchment-style paper vulture that was incredible it's just ridiculous the amount of styles that are in this i mean we talked about how long it took for them to develop the tech to do spider punk the vulture scene must have been along similar lines for them to do that art style to create this i don't know how they do it it's insane but now the technology is here i want them to do it a lot <laughs> it's even how they deploy the animation in less bombastic ways so it's not all in fights and things sometimes it's what would otherwise be fairly not dry, but standardish conversations. So Gwen talking to her dad after she unmasks in front of him, the background melts away as she's talking. It's as if her world's crumbling apart or crying around her. The environment gives you the emotion as well as the actors. It heightens it in some way, even though the conversation is a fairly standard shot, reverse shot type. Gwen speaks, the camera's on her when she speaks, and the camera's on her dad when he speaks, and so on. And it cuts back and forth. But while it's doing that, you can see the background melting and the colours bleeding into each other and things. It just makes typical-ish conversations that you see in these things all the time far more interesting. Or when Gwen's in her room speaking to her dad and you just see the colours randomly shifting as they're talking. There's a blue tint in her hair, pink elsewhere, or whatever. All these weird and wonderful stylistic choices they make that end up heightening the emotion. I like that they look at every frame as if it's as important as any other frame. So it's not we're going to throw everything into the third act climax. We're applying this level of scrutiny to every minute of this film. We're going to make every minute of it worthwhile. We don't want anybody to feel like they're waiting for something good to happen. It's always happening. Like we discussed with some of the other stuff earlier on, it's everything is there with purpose as well. It's not we've unnecessarily thrown all this about. It's adding emotional heft or it's adding a story beat or it's adding an accentuation to a point that's being made on screen. That's what makes it work. It takes a lot of time to do it but it's worth it that's the thing is it's proof that spending this amount of time on it works where they could have probably really easily done a yeah we're not going to do any multiverse stuff we're going to stick in miles's universe it means it's one animation style using the tech that we've already developed then just bash another one of these out they didn't do that they've really focused and spent time on this they aren't working it and they all just deserve to be applauded or they could have done a multiverse story with a flat animation style. It just looks the same throughout. They could have easily done that. Yeah, just really dull, amalgamate it all. But instead, like you say, they've done so much in there and they've used it to accentuate stuff. Like you said, Gwen and her father, the colour sort of merging in was just so smart. Something that someone pointed out online as well is that Gwen has a gap in her teeth. They've made the characters very distinct and with quote-unquote imperfections. Hmm. I don't know that a gap in your teeth is necessarily an imperfection. Although, remember The Amazing Spider-Man 2, where one of the first things that happened when Max was getting his powers, when Electro was getting his powers, was the electric eels fixed the gap in his teeth. <laughs> That's how they set him up as being a nerd, because he had a gap in his teeth. But so yeah, those, I guess, gritty is the right word. These gritty character designs, they look like real people. I mean, they don't, but you know what I mean. They're not these epitome of perfection type drawings that you might see other places. Yeah. Or he said different shapes and sizes of spiders as well. 
representation, for want of a better... Diversity. Diversity, showing that it takes all sorts. I like that. I can't disagree with anything that you've said, though. So any final thoughts on Across the Spider-Verse before we wrap up? Oh, probably hundreds that I've not (laughs) thought of. No other thoughts. I just really look forward to seeing this again. If I don't catch it at the cinema, then as soon as it becomes available on video. Which at the current rate of the turnaround time will probably be before I get this podcast out. (laughs) What was it, Fast and Furious? Less than three weeks before it appeared on digital? Hmm. What a world we live in. This deserves to be seen on screen, though. This is one of those ones that I've been telling people, see it at the cinema, because I think you need to see it on a big, gorgeous screen. We saw it in IMAX, which was glorious. We did. We were very lucky to see it in IMAX. There's a few films that are like that, where you go, this one, see it on a big screen. Yeah. So what are your final thoughts on Across the Spider-Verse, then? Your summation thoughts. Chrissy's wrap-up thoughts. It's awesome. There we go. That about sums up. Yeah, I thought it was excellent. Cannot wait for part three. Although, also, I can wait till part three. Do not rush it. But totally rush it. I want to see part three. Plus, Spider-Man 2 is out later in the year on the PS5, so that'll... Give me my spider fix until this, probably. <laughs> Although if you live in Miles' universe, it's already out. Because Ganky was playing it. That was a very nice little nod. I like that. So yes, I'll get my spider fix later in the year when Spider-Man 2 is out on the PS5. But you won't, because you don't have a PS5. I won't. I'll wait, what, two years? A year? It'll come out on PC eventually. Or you can come and visit and watch me play it. I won't let you touch it. <laughs> I'll get to sit and watch you play games. Okay, fine. How exciting would that be? So exciting. Me and Spock will just sit and watch. Nah, Spock won't watch anything. He'll be asleep. <laughs> Probably so will I. That was our conversation about Across the Spider-Verse, or Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. I would like to thank Neil Stenson for the supplied music. And if you liked what you heard, please do hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, any universe, any feed, you will find it. And most of those things now have an in-app rating system where you can press... Uh, star and it will give us that corresponding number of stars but Chris how many stars should they give us all of them the maximum number of stars be that 5 be that 10 be that 100 we will take all your stars all the stars in the multiverse give them to us all the stars in the multiverse all of them you can leave us a comment as well if you want to talk to us about across the spider-verse spider-man in general anything else really you can hit us up on facebook or twitter under the blog or you can leave us a comment on newbeforeblog.co.uk. And as always, we hope you'll join us next time on Neil Before Pod. <laughs>